0: Think about the Bible like you never have before. You're listening to Christian Questions. Experience more episodes, videos, and Bible study resources
1: at ChristianQuestions.com. Our topic is, what did Jesus really think of the Pharisees? When Jesus arrived as the world's Savior 2,000 years ago, he was not met with open arms by all. The scribes and Pharisees who were Israel's leaders at the time really did not like him. Before Jesus died. He bluntly told these leaders of their hypocrisy. Was Jesus drawing a line in the sand for an epic battle? Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 25 years, and Julie, a longtime contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for this episode?
0: Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are all like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness.
1: Jesus was a wise and loving, compassionate man. His whole reason for becoming a man was to give his life as a ransom for every single human being who ever lived, and you can't get more selfless in giving than that. Yet with all of his compassion, Jesus was also one to not mince words when a hard message was needed. This became extremely evident when we examine the seven woes he proclaimed to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Of all the words we have recorded of Jesus' earthly ministry, these are the most blunt and direct. What was Jesus really saying to the scribes and Pharisees? Was he showing a fundamental dislike for them? Was he exposing their true character so everybody could see? Or was he simply expressing his dislike for who they were and what they stood for?
2: Matthew chapter 22 ends with several questions and answers between Jesus and the religious leaders at the time. As usual, Jesus, in his wisdom and grace taught by giving profound answers to their questions, as well as asking questions that they couldn't answer.
0: Matthew 23 begins by Jesus turning to speak to those who were listening in on these conversations. What he says is very pointed. Matthew 23, 1 through 5. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to the disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Who are the scribes? They meticulously studied and copied the law and added commentary and clarification. We have the Old Testament preserved today because of the scribes. Some scribes were also Pharisees.
2: Pharisees were a sect of Judaism who were the religious teachers of the day. They had great influence over the common people and the word Pharisee means separated one. They separated themselves from the Gentiles and from other Jews who weren't keeping the rituals of the law as they were. They wanted instructions for every detail of life beyond that which was written in the law, so they created what's called the oral tradition of interpretation for codes of conduct, rituals, worship, interpersonal relationships, dietary laws, festivals, claims for damages, and even marital
1: relations. So now we've got a sense on who the scribes and the Pharisees were, and the scripture says here that they were sitting in the seat of Moses. Julie, let's expand that a little bit.
2: We looked at Bible commentary by Albert Barnes and it said this, Moses's seat, Moses was a legislature of the Jews. By him, the law was given and the office of explaining that law devolved on the scribes and Pharisees. In the synagogues, they sat while expounding the law and rose when they read it. By sitting in the seat of Moses, we are to understand authority to teach the law or as he taught the nation by giving the law, they taught it by explaining it.
0: They did what? They sat in Moses' place? They took the seat of authority? Now, as Jesus says in Luke twelve forty eight, for everyone who has been given much, much will be required.
1: We will find out how they did in that position. Yeah, that's a pretty lofty position to sit in the seat of Moses of anybody we're looking at Matthew 23, and Jesus explains that as legislators and teachers of the law, as Julie, you mentioned just a a moment ago, they developed a double standard. You know, the word Pharisee means separated out from. So they developed this double standard. Let's go to Matthew 23 now, verses 3 and 4.
0: Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much a finger. In other words, do what they say when they are reading the actual law to you, not what they do. The Pharisees don't practice what they teach and will crush you with impossible religious demands.
1: That's an important balance. Do what the law says, but don't follow the interpretation. So Jesus is speaking very strongly here as he is putting himself in position for these coming woes. Now, he continues in Matthew 23 by revealing why they do these things. Let's look at Matthew 23, the first part of verse 5. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men,
2: Wow, that's an accusation. Reading from Thayer's Greek lexicon on this, it says, They sought for distinction and praise by outward observation of external rites and by outward forms of piety and such as ceremonial washings, fastings, prayers, almsgiving, and comparatively negligent of genuine piety. They prided themselves on their
1: fancied good works. Fancied good works. So Jesus is painting a picture of reality of what the average person saw but was most likely afraid to even step towards because it was scary because they had such big strong authority over everybody. So Jesus then continues outlining several detailed examples of their pride. Jesus next, and we're still summing up Matthew 23, he next cautions about proper respect that the people should have for those in positions of leadership. By way of comparison, so we're going to leave Matthew 23 for a moment, by way of comparison, Jesus himself lived up to an entirely different standard as a leader of the people. Let's go to Matthew 11 28 to 30, and this is how Jesus led.
0: Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. You know, compare the added burdens on top of the law the Pharisees imposed on them. Jesus wanted to remove those burdens and provide rest.
1: This was the complete opposite approach. And this is approaching the people, not repelling the people. There is a big difference, and Jesus is displaying that in Matthew 23. He's showing them what's happening. So he finishes, back to Matthew 23, he finishes these observations with a powerful summary of appropriate reverence for God's ways. Simple statement here powerful summary, Matthew 23, 11 to 12.
0: But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted.
2: Now, if you read in context, all these words were likely spoken right in front of the scribes and Pharisees. And imagine the anger that would have welled up in them as they started hearing these little observations that Jesus starts hammering on. You know, perhaps they're wondering, does Jesus have the courage to say these things
1: directly to
2: us? Well, he did and he would.
1: Yeah, you know, when it comes to courage, never doubt our Lord Jesus <laughs> in any way, but it's always presented in, in the wisest, most compassionate, most complete way. As we shall see, Jesus is going to move forward now. We're going to see that Jesus likely—now this is, this is some, some, some inference on our part— he likely had several prophecies in mind as he was about to bluntly expose the hypocrisies of the scribes and the Pharisees before this public audience. We're going to go back to Old Testament prophecies about shepherding, because they're going to help us understand what Jesus was talking about in a way that the Pharisees themselves would understand. So let's go back to Jeremiah 23, 1-2 as our first drop into prophecies.
0: Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Jesus is provoked not by anger, but by loyalty to God's
1: word. So you've got this prophecy that talks about, you've scattered the sheep, you haven't helped them, you haven't guided them, and now I'm going to have to attend to you. And we look at this prophecy, and it's certainly not unreasonable to think that Jesus is, is reading this prophecy, saying, this is what I am called to do. This is the position I am called to take. And so what happens now is he speaks directly to the scribes and Pharisees. He's been talking about them in front of them. This is not talking behind somebody's back. This is in front of them. And now he's going to talk directly to them. Let's look at Matthew 23, 13.
0: But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go
1: in. This is the first woe. Now, we're not going to discuss it in detail here, but we want to set some parameters for understanding what all of this is about. The first parameter, what we've seen so far in the beginning of Matthew chapter 23. Let's again ask the theme question from the beginning of this episode. What did Jesus really think of the scribes and Pharisees? Jonathan, what did he really think? He loved them.
0: You know, why would I say that? We say that. Let's take a look at the word woe. The Greek word for woe, spelled W-O-E, is an exclamation of grief. The dictionary definition is a deep and poignant distress caused by or as if by bereavement.
1: So what does the definition of woe got to do with supporting Jesus loving them? Think about what he is about to do. He's about to tell them, woe. He's about to say there's going to be extreme grief on your part. Why would he say that? He's like, I'm going to get you. I don't think so. Not at all. Why? Because let's look at how Jesus in other places proclaimed woes to a few other circumstances. So in the next few scriptures, we're going to look at Jesus proclaiming a woe and think the question in your own mind, did he take joy in this or was there sincere concern? Let's start with Matthew twenty-four nineteen. And woe
0: unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days.
1: Literally
2: until this week's study, I always thought Jesus pronouncing a woe was like a verbal curse, but it's not. Woe is an exclamation of grief. Here in this scripture, you just read, he's saying how terrible, how sad it will be for pregnant and nursing mothers in those days because they will have such grief.
0: Let's look at one more example in Luke 6, 24 and 25. But woe unto you that are rich. For ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Jesus is feeling their pain. That's why he died for them. And
1: see, and that's the thing. Jesus is feeling the pain of all of the results of evil, of sin, of being away from God. And he came to ransom all of that but he's feeling what the people will feel. So this is not a I'm going to get you. This is what you're going to have to go through because of sin. But I'm here and like you said Jonathan, Jesus died for all. The salvation that he gave to them, to us and to everyone is free. Let's just verify that John 3:16 to 17.
0: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him.
1: You've got this concept of God loving the world, giving his Son so that there would be life. That's salvation. That's the message of salvation. There's no gotcha here. He didn't send his Son into the world to judge, but to save. You see, there is a day of judgment in the future, but that is a whole different thing than what a lot of us say that, okay, you're done, you're done, you're done. Jesus came to say, no, you've not begun, you've not begun, you've not begun. This is what salvation is in Jesus.
0: Rick, when we heard Jesus teaching the people about how the religious leaders put burdens upon them, we can't help but look at our day. Could there be a parallel? Many religious leaders today place burdens of false teachings that contradict God's holy word
1: and lead the flock astray. We want to be careful about those kinds of things. Are we ever ever preaching something that's outside of the Word of God, that's an extension of the Word of God, that's built upon something that we believe to be convenient. You know, we talked about bias a few weeks ago, and there's a lot, unfortunately, a lot of bias and a lot of Christian teaching, and we want to be very, very careful of that. We've got an introduction here. We've got Jesus getting set to do these seven woes let's back up and and sum this up here so let's learn from jesus's heartfelt messages to the scribes and pharisees jonathan let's give our first summation
0: the first and foundational lesson from jesus in his calling out the scribes and pharisees is one of selfless love jesus saw them for what they were that is sinful human beings needed his ransom to have a future opportunity for life he called them out to
1: show them the error of their ways And that's a critically important point. And usually we don't answer the big question (laughs) for a podcast at the beginning, but that's the big answer, is he was calling them out to show them so they would have a basis for future reconciliation. This was out of love that he did this. This is lining up to be a very intense exchange as Jesus has set the table to be honest and sincere in revealing misuses of God's law.
0: Now that we have a basic understanding of Jesus's approach to these
1: expressions of grief, what was he driving at with the first one? Jesus' first statement to the scribes and Pharisees as recorded in Matthew was not merely an introduction or a warm-up thought. Oh no, no, no. He wasted no time in getting right down to the meat of the matter. As we shall see, This first woe actually sets the context for the rest of them. It puts a definitive label in place, and then explains the why behind the label. Now we're going to examine that first woe, and we're going to use the New Living Translation as we quote all of these seven woes. The first woe is in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13.
0: In the New Living Translation, woe is expressed as, what sorrow awaits you. This really brings out the true meaning of the word. Verse 13, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, the scribes, and you, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either.
1: Okay. (laughs) <laughs> it's not a very happy statement here. This is the the first of seven very unhappy statements. He's talking about shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is not going to heaven, not being in heaven right then. It's the call. Jesus said when he was preaching, what did he say? The kingdom of heaven is among you. So he's saying you're shutting the door for this calling to the kingdom. You're being called to something bigger and greater.
0: The Greek word for hypocrite in this verse means an actor under an assumed character, an actor on a stage, figuratively a dissembler. To dissemble is to hide under a false appearance. That's a powerful accusation.
2: The Pharisees created this very narrow path for acceptability before God because of all of these traditions that they had. And we're going to see that Jesus went and talked to all these people who were outside of that very narrow path. And of course, the Pharisees didn't like that.
1: No, and this is where you have this massive fundamental difference between Jesus' preaching and the Pharisees' reactions. It's a massive difference. And one more thing. You'll notice he's no longer reasoning with them because
2: he's tried to be with them over and over and over again and explain and explain. Now he's just coming right
1: out and he's just telling them how it is. And you've you got to ask yourself, well, why is he doing that? And the answer is he's out of time. Right. His crucifixion is, is mere weeks away, and this is his last attempt to help them see So let's look at this last attempt and see the depth and the power of it. What door did they shut? We talked about it being the door to the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does that mean? Is this a big door on these big three hinges? No, actually Jesus describes it as he himself being that door. Let's go to John chapter 10, verses 7 through 9.
0: So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture
2: let's go back to albert barnes commentary on the bible on all who came before me are thieves and robbers it's probable that he rather refers to the scribes and pharisees who claimed to be instructors of the people who claimed the right to regulate the affairs of religion and whose only aim was to aggrandize themselves and to oppress the
0: people following jesus is the only way to receive a heavenly reward by teaching the people to reject jesus they were in fact blocking the door
1: the only way to the kingdom of heaven. Right. They literally shut the door. They shut down Jesus. They literally shut down the door. The scribes and Pharisees ignored Jesus, ignored his teachings, and ignored his miracles. They decided, on the contrary, that his death was a necessary event to protect their position with regard to the Roman governing powers. This is where they're coming from, and this is why Jesus is being so focused on on telling them at this point. So as we go through each one of these seven woes, we want to isolate the problem. And Julie, you get to be the problem. <laughs>
2: so <laughs> oh, what, what, what's
1: the problem with the first woe? Mm-hmm.
2: The scribes and Pharisees were in charge, but their authority was steeped in hypocrisy, as he accused them. While sitting in this seat of Moses, They are wielding controlling authority, but it's not their place to do so. And this was bringing the average person farther away from God, which is never a good trait in a religious leader.
1: They're doing exactly the opposite of what they had the opportunity to do in the position that they had. And that's what Jesus is telling them. When you're closing the door to the kingdom of heaven. You're doing exactly the opposite. Jesus had already warned them. Now, this is the interesting thing about every single one of these woes, is this is not something new that Jesus says like, oh, really? You never said that before. Throughout his ministry, these things came up in different ways. He'd already warned them about this hypocrisy through other teachings. Let's look at Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 begins by Jesus preparing to speak several parables. So let's look at the introduction, Luke 15, 1 to 3.
0: Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable and he teaches them the parable of the lost sheep. Rick and Julie, this lesson was for the benefit of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus was teaching them the value of, yes, even the sinners. You know, after that lesson came the parable of the lost coin and was followed by the parable of the prodigal son.
2: Okay, the prodigal son. Prodigal is an added title. It's not actually found in the original Greek. And I, until now, did not realize it's from the Latin prodigus, first used in the 1500s. Now, I always thought it had something to do with going away and returning. But in fact, it means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Having or giving something on a lavish scale this is the story of two brothers the younger brother asks for his portion of his inheritance early but he wastes it all on an extravagant and foolish prodigal lifestyle and loses everything he returns home he begs his father to accept him back just as a servant not even a son but the father warmly welcomes him back with a celebration but the older, more responsible brother who had stayed home this whole time is jealous and refuses to welcome back his younger brother. Let's pick up the story with Luke 15, 28 and 32.
0: His father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, "'Look, for so many years I've been serving you, "'and I have never neglected a command of yours, "'and yet you've never given me a young goat "'so that I might celebrate with my friends. "'But when this son of yours came, "'who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, "'you killed the fatted calf for him.' "'And he said to him, "'Son, you have always been with me, "'and all that is mine is yours. "'But we had to celebrate and rejoice, "'for this brother of yours was dead, And has begun to live it was lost and has been found
2: so that was the literal story let's look at it from a spiritual perspective the nation of israel as god's chosen people didn't live up to their responsibilities their privileges or their opportunities and israel was essentially made up of two kinds of people those who pretended to be faithful and those who just were not neither was good
0: the younger son pictured the rebellious and independent israelites who didn't pay much attention to the law, the sinners and the tax collectors.
2: But the older son, with his sense of entitlement, pictured these scribes and Pharisees. That was his point. Outwardly, they were in line with God. They looked the part because they claimed to follow the law. Why should the sinners, represented by the younger brother, receive any favor from the father? Their bitterness prevented their compassion.
1: Jesus speaks these parables, and he's speaking them, remember, in the context of tax collectors and sinners coming near to Jesus, and the scribes and Pharisees grumbling. So he says, okay, I'm going to teach you. So he taught them by way of parable, by way of story. Did they get it? No. So now at the end of his ministry, he has to tell them because they need to be told, because he's trying to help them understand. He's trying to lift them out of the mire which they have created for themselves
0: looking to today Rick many christian leaders look down on other christians that don't believe the way that they do they judge these individuals as you know lost forever as enemies of god because they don't meet their criteria you know History seems to be repeating itself.
1: It does. It really does. And we need to be incredibly careful of that, because Jesus didn't show that attitude in his teachings, nor did the apostles. So what would make Christians today want to do that? Think about that. we gotta, we got to ask ourselves those questions. Their hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, was manifest by carrying the privilege of shepherds while only feeding, not the sheep, but their own position feeding themselves. Let's go back to another prophecy that may, or may not have, but may have been in Jesus's mind as he's doing this. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 2.
0: Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding
1: themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? Okay, you're a shepherd. What's your job? What's your primary descriptive work that you are supposed to be doing? Shouldn't you be doing what you're called to do? That's the question in this very simple, the beginning of this prophecy. We're going to come back to this with the next woe.
2: So remember, the first woe was you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, you won't go in yourselves but you don't let others enter either. And the only way to receive a heavenly reward we do know is through Jesus and they refused to acknowledge him. They actively taught against him. Following the law made them worthy. They had no need for this repentance that Jesus was teaching.
0: What about us? How do we combat the possibility of being hypocrites like the scribes and
1: Pharisees? Do what they didn't do. Listen to Jesus. I appreciate that. Do what they didn't do. Whenever you see something going bad, don't follow it. Don't do what they do. Go the opposite direction. And that's really what Jesus had spoken throughout his whole ministry. And it's interesting. When you look at the Jesus ministry, this is near the end of his ministry, he's really preparing for his crucifixion. These prophecies, Matthew 24, is the prophecy of his return. He's preparing for leaving. And so it's very, very well thought out what he's doing. Let's look back early in his ministry and look at some of the intentional thinking as well. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount listed the Beatitudes at the very, very beginning of that Sermon on the Mount. He, with those Beatitudes, laid a foundation for our lives for the rest of the teachings that would be built upon them. And when you look at it, there are seven basic Beatitudes at the very beginning of his ministry, you've got these masses, these thousands of people coming, this is a basis that he intentionally sets. Fast forward to near the end of his ministry. Jesus was also very intentional as he laid out the seven woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. These were his last attempt to show them their faults before his death. So you have the Beatitudes that began it didn't technically begin, but you know what I'm saying. In a very public way, began his ministry, and this to the religious leaders near the end of his ministry.
0: The simple theme of these Beatitudes is based on the idea of being blessed, meaning to be fortunate or well-off.
2: And we highly recommend listening to episodes 1213 and 1214 called Is God Happy With My Attitude? It was all about the Beatitudes. Click on the CQ Rewind show notes for every episode to see all the companion podcast recommendations we have.
1: So you've got the Beatitudes and you've got the woes. So now let's focus for a moment on the Beatitudes. The meaning of this word, Jonathan, you talked about, blessed. It's far deeper than just simple happiness. In every use in the New Testament, and it's, it, it's always tied into those who serve God, no matter what the circumstance, or it describes God himself. So this word blessed is used to describe the Heavenly Father or those tied to him. So you have a very lofty sense of what blessed means. When we think blessed, we need to think of being touched or guided by God's favor, which means we personally have God's attention blessed let's keep that in mind as we go through this
2: so rick you're saying we can line up all these seven woes on one side and all the blesseds on the other the first woe really came down to pride of position they were blocking the doorway not letting anyone go in they would be the ones who would dictate how to get to god
0: here's the first beatitude matthew 5 3 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven to be poor in spirit is to be humble and not having an air of superiority. The pride of position was the woe versus the blessedness of humility. So the door to the kingdom of heaven is wide open for the humble.
1: Blessed are those who are humble. So Jesus, there's a dramatic contrast here. Let's just verify that contrast further. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 6.
0: And all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper
1: time. So humility doesn't mean you instantly get exhilaration or exaltation. Humility means serve and trust. Serve and trust. And this is what we're not seeing in the other side of things. Jonathan, you said, how do we avoid falling into that kind of hypocrisy? Don't do what they did listen to Jesus. Jesus' message here is humility. True, simple humility, and that's who and what he was. So we have seven woes and seven lessons. Jonathan, what's the first one?
0: Power and authority must be governed by humility and truth. The moment we begin to display our preferences as guidelines over the principles of truth while guiding others is the moment hypocrisy is given a place to reside. The blessing of the kingdom of heaven is only reserved for the humble. Run from hypocrisy.
1: We can't stress that enough. Run from hypocrisy because when we give it time and we give it space, we're actually giving it a place to live. You don't want hypocrisy living inside of your heart and your mind. This is an extremely sobering lesson about the ease with which hypocrisy can find a comfortable home within our personal preferences
0: pride and position can lead to excluding others from godliness this is pretty bad how
1: much worse can it get you really want to know (laughs) as bad as this may seem it's only an introduction into the depth of degradation that any misuse of godly truth can bring so this is not just about the pharisees here as we unfold these woes one at a time, we want to clearly observe how each woe hypocritically builds upon the previous one in the same manner as the Beatitudes built upon one another, but on that side, it was in a very spiritual, God-honoring, blessed fashion.
2: We're going to move on to the second woe in Matthew 23:15, but notice we've skipped over verse 14. It's a woe for devouring widows' houses and making long, showy prayers. But this text is omitted in the most modern translations. They skip right over from 13 to 15. It's not found in the earliest manuscripts of better quality. They're generally thought to have been added later. It's not wrong. It's just in the wrong place. The words are legitimately found elsewhere in Mark twelve forty and Luke twenty forty
1: All right. So they do exist, but just not here. And that's why we're not going to consider them here in this narrative. So, on to the second woe. Let's look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 15.
0: Woe, or what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of Gehenna you
1: yourselves are. That sounds pretty serious. Now, with the first woe, Their positions and decisions closed the door for others to receive the heavenly kingdom. Now we see that their positions and decisions do something else. They drew others away from godliness and towards a life of destructiveness. Their hypocrisy was now reproducing their sin in others. It's one thing to close the door. It's another thing to reproduce the sin in others.
2: I like the comment my life application study Bible had. The Pharisees' converts were attracted to Pharisaism, not to God. By getting caught up in the details of their additional laws and regulations, they completely missed God, to whom the laws pointed. A religion of deeds, puts pressure on people to surpass others in what they know and do. Thus, a hypocritical teacher was likely to have students who were even more hypocritical. We must make sure. We are not creating Pharisees by emphasizing outward obedience at the
1: expense of inner renewal. And not just outward obedience in this case, but outward obedience to added pieces that didn't belong in the original plan. So, th- this is very diabolical when you look at what's happening here. Very, very, very diabolical. Prophecy, let's again, let's go back to prophecy. Prophecy again shows this propensity to ignore their true responsibility while focusing on dominating others. You can dominate by shutting some out, you can dominate by drawing others in and sort of brainwashing them to follow you. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 34. We started there in our last woe, verses three to four. You eat the
0: fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity,
1: you have dominated them. It's just not a good situation. You don't want this written about you. We look at this and we see how Jesus is responding to these prophecies and saying, you have to see what you're doing. So, Julie, there's a problem here, and you get to tell us, what's this problem with this (laughs) second woe? The hypocrisy continues
2: because this hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees was so deep that it manufactured a sinful zeal. Which sought to expand their reach and influence through converts. And it ended up perverting the lives of those converts by teaching them that error was truth.
0: This sounds like today. (laughs) It's like when religious leaders go to faraway countries to convert people to Christianity. And when they teach them what we believe are false doctrines, like if you join our church, we guarantee salvation. Or if you don't join, You'll be tormented throughout eternity. Make your choice, people. That, that's so sad.
1: It is. And it takes away the power and the grace and the wisdom and the justice and the love of the plan of God. It takes away the gospel. It takes away the very character of Jesus out of the teachings. And that's something we want to absolutely positively avoid. It's a big problem with the zeal to bring these converts and, and just bring them to be teaching these errors. Let's look at Jesus in how he would have told them this beforehand. Jesus had revealed this to them before. There's no surprises here. In John chapter 8, Jesus had just said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. After he said that, the scribes and the Pharisees took issue with the implication that, what do you mean the truth will make us free? So you're telling us that we're captives? We're not captives. We're free people. So Jesus actually took some time and showed them how they were captive. Let's look at John chapter 8, verses 38 to 41, and this is showing us what Jesus is describing in this woe. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do
0: the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, You are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God.
2: Ooh, that last sentence was an insult. They are personally attacking him, accusing Jesus of being born of fornication because his mother wasn't
1: married. You have Jesus talking to them about what they're captive to. And instead of listening, they turn the tables and say, well, look, look at you, look at you. They're not listening. Maybe I would have gotten flustered by that, but not Jesus. Jesus doesn't equivocate because of their personal attack. Instead, what does he do? He presses even harder because the truth he's telling them. The truth can make you free. Let me tell you the truth to take the shackles off. Let's go now to John chapter 8, continuing with verses 42 to 45.
0: Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. In other words, Jesus is confirming that he is following the instructions of God Almighty. Continuing, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of the father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand for the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. What a comeback.
2: The parallel he's drawing is clear. They wanted what Satan wanted. They're basically working for Satan by hating truth, telling lies, and looking to have Jesus murdered because he was a murderer from the beginning. You see that parallel?
1: And, you know, they wanted what Satan wanted. What did Satan want? He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted elevation. He wanted separation from everybody else. What were the Pharisees and scribes after? Elevation, separation from everybody else. So Jesus is telling them, look at yourselves understand the fallacy that you have fallen for. Satan, as the father of lies, subverted humanity into a pattern of godlessness and death. Jesus is warning them that you, you are following that very pattern. How do we
0: combat the possibility of becoming hypocrites like the scribes and Pharisees? Do what they didn't do. Listen to Jesus. Our next Beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word for mourn means to grieve. This can be mourning for many reasons, from grieving over the loss of a loved one, grieving over their own personal sins, to grieving over the worsening, sin-sick conditions of our world. Grieving is healthy and productive, especially in the context of the gospel.
2: Jesus grieved over the nation of Israel in Matthew 23, 37 to 39. He said, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, right before he pronounced that their house was left to them desolate. The Pharisees weren't grieving over Israel getting farther and farther away from God. They were proud and they were dominating.
1: Right. They were proud because it's like, okay, they can go. Look at us. We're all good. <laughs> hey, look, look at, at, at how us. shiny I look. And Jesus will get into those things. And it's interesting, Julie, that scripture you just quoted will be the end of part two because Jesus grieves in the end for all that has gone awry here. So grieving, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It's a humble stance and it is an important stance. Allowing ourselves to be vulnerable to our grief enables God's comfort through Christ to do its work.
0: Rick, I'm so glad you picked this next verse because this describes me at my low point in life. I was grieving a loss to the point of despair and the Lord intervened to draw me to Christ. Psalm forty one through three. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord.
1: So you have this grieving over difficulties and over the reality of the world rather than the domination of creating followers that are going to do exactly what you tell them to do. It is fundamentally opposite the direction they had gone. The Beatitudes show us this is the kind of attitude we we need to have. You just need to listen to Jesus. So, Jonathan, we have seven woes and seven lessons. We're on to the second one. What do we have?
0: Power and authority that is unchecked by godly truth becomes a tool in the hand of Satan and inevitably leads to actively destroying others' lives through darkness. Instead of creating more candidates for destruction, We should instead mourn deeply and sincerely mourn over the sin sickness of our world and find our comfort in Jesus' ransom price that was paid for all. Salvation is free.
1: It is free, and it's so important to understand how to counteract the potential for this kind of hypocrisy that wants to build this superstructure of followers. It is to mourn over the difficulties. Why? That's what Jesus did. Remember those other woes, those other examples that he said, Woe unto you. And and, you know, just one other quick example. Jesus, when he's carrying his cross and he's on his way to be crucified and the women are weeping over him, he stops and he looks at them. You know what he says? Don't weep for me. Now here he is. He's been tortured and tormented. He's about to die. He says, Weep for yourselves for what's coming. This is the attitude. And this is not, this is not what the Pharisees had. They were dominating and Jesus was sacrificing. What a difference between them. The Pharisees' hypocritical applications of their power and position should be a warning to all of us as we seek godly truth.
0: So far, we have seen that when hypocrisy takes hold, it runs deep. What else can we learn from the God dishonoring approach of the
1: Pharisees? While hypocrisy is a weapon of mass destruction all on its own, it's not the only tool of Satan that had found a home in these Jewish leaders of Jesus's day. As we shall see, there is another weapon that Satan can develop that is an outgrowth It actually grows out of this habitual hypocrisy. So hypocrisy, you notice in the first two woes, he, he says it twice. Hypocrites, hypocrites. He's making a point. In the third woe, Jesus introduces a new tool of destruction. And he not only introduces this new tool of destruction as he proclaims this woe, he also explains the truth of the matter. So this woe is a little bit different. Because he's not just saying what's wrong, he's giving the perspective of what's right. So it's longer, but it's more comprehensive in what he's saying. So the third woe is in Matthew 23, verses 16 to 22. And this is all about spiritual
0: eyesight. Listen for how many times the word blind is used. Blind guides what sorrows awaits you. And we remember that phrase translated as woe. For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts on the altar is binding how blind! For which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? When you swear by the altar, you are swearing by it and by everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you are swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you are swearing by heaven, you are swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. The first two woes were found in hypocrisy. 1. They closed the door to the kingdom of heaven. Too. they corrupted and dominated the people with lies. Now, Jesus calls them blind three times as he exposes specific details of their false teaching.
2: If you've heard the expression blind leading the blind, that's from Matthew 15, 14. And here this gives a similar thought. So what's happening? The Pharisees are being dishonest and they're hypocritical by creating these legalistic loopholes and this conditional approach to taking an oath. Notice they're emphasizing the gold of the gifts brought to the temple were somehow more significant than the temple itself or the altar of the sacrifices, all these little tiny details. And maybe that would mean that people, if they put more focus on all the gifts that they needed to make a vow to God that would make the Pharisees look good somehow, it's just too much detail. That wasn't what this was all about.
1: And that's the point. They created details that were unimportant, but the way they created the details was to say, oh no, you poor little ignorant people, don't you (laughs) understand that it's the gold and not this? It's that part, not this part? And so by doing that, what they did is they discouraged and they beat down the average person because the average person's like, I can never get this right. I just can't, this is beyond me. So why, why, why teach these things? They taught these things to establish a distance between them and the average Jew, to show their self-proclaimed superiority and the people's supposed ignorance. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus did. Exactly the opposite. And that's why he's explaining it to them. And that's why he's explaining to them, put the whole thing together. You're wrong. He's not like, okay, let's adjust this a little bit. He said, no, no, you're wrong. You're blind in what you're doing. Once again, prophecy cries out against them. Let's go to a different prophecy that fits what's happening here with this particular well. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 10 through 12.
0: His watchmen are blind, all of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs unable to bark, dreamers lying down, who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy, they are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine, and let us drink heavily of strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, only
1: more so. So you've got, this is very colorful language in Isaiah, but it's describing shepherds who have no understanding. And it's saying dogs unable to park. You can't even put the warning out. Dreamers who lie down, who lie down you'd rather sleep than watch. I mean, everything that, that the prophecy says is against what they're doing. And it fits so well with how they parsed out the details to make it more complex. Julie, there's a big problem here in this third well. What is it?
2: Well, the scribes and Pharisees lived so hypocritically that they blinded themselves to the higher truths of Scripture and instead taught fabricated precepts of importance. Now, I learned a new word when I was setting for this, casuistry. That's the use of clever but unsound reasoning, especially in relation to moral questions. Casuistry, it sounds plausible, but it's actually wrong, deceptive, or dishonest. Their convoluted interpretations made God's will unreachable to the average person, but it certainly would mean job security if you were a Pharisee.
1: So are we worried about job security, or are we worried about the sheep? And see, this is where it broke down, and this is why Jesus is so firm with them near the end of his ministry, because nothing else worked. He showed them, he guided them, he demonstrated miracles, he answered every question, he asked them questions they couldn't answer, he got away when, when they were trying to get him. All of those things were proof, and yet, here they stood in defiance. Jesus, no surprise here, Jesus had already demonstrated this blindness issue to them, and how did he do that? He did that by healing a blind man On the Sabbath, all right, let's look at John chapter 9. John 9 begins with Jesus healing this man who had been blind from birth. That was a really big deal. The people bring this man, this healed man, to the Pharisees, who are harsh with their questions and not liking this man's answers. They seek out his parents because they wanted to get the truth from his parents. His parents don't want anything to do with them because they know the harshness of these leaders. They know they'll get thrown out of the synagogue if they don't give the right answers. They summon this man back for questions again. So they're angry about this. Now think about this. This guy has been given his life from nowhere, and they're angry. So let's drop into this account, John 9, 24 to 34.
0: So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you?
2: He gave this simple but irrefutable testimony. I can see. But I like how he isn't intimidated by them and he baits them by essentially saying, if you keep asking me the same questions, you're gonna get the same answer. And are you doing this because you also wanna be his disciples?
0: (laughs) Continuing, they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Mm. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know, where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do anything. They answered him, You were born entirely in sin, and are you teaching us? So they put him
1: out. So they put him out. All he did was recount what had happened to him. And the problem with this particular miracle is everybody knew this man because he was born blind. He was this public figure, and it was irrefutable, like you said before, Julie, that this man had this handicap, and there was nothing anybody could do. And Jesus comes along and heals him on the Sabbath. And so what do they do with this wonderful gift to his life? They put him out of the synagogue. That's what they do. This is why Jesus is coming down so hard on them at this point, because of their self-inflicted blindness. Jesus, to round out this account, Jesus finds this man and encourages him by telling him who Jesus really is. John chapter 9, let's go to Jonathan, just go to uh, verses 39 to 41. And Jesus said, For
0: judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see,
1: your sins remain. Understand what's happening here. Jesus says, Well, if you were physically blind, you would have no sin. But because you say you see, you're blind you're absolutely blind. You cannot accept the grace of God. That's what he's telling them in this event. It is very straightforward. It is very clear. So when Jesus talked to them about being blind guides now, nothing new, nothing different, just a firm, clear, undeniable reminder of what they had previously displayed.
0: How do we combat the possibility of being hypocrites like the scribes and Pharisees? Don't do what they did. Listen to Jesus. Matthew 5:5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The word here for gentle means mild, and it's only used three times. It is important to not confuse being gentle or meek with weakness. Meek is not weak. This gentleness also portrays teachableness and being gentle nature rather than being stubborn and abrasive.
2: Comparing this back to that third woe, you can see that their stubbornness with this created and complicated rules that the average person wasn't going to be able to understand. Their casuistry created a maze of what was and what was not acceptable. So the average person was not getting closer to God. I just love how this blindness, you know, this is the miracle that he does, this blindness against this
1: woe. It's amazing. And the beatitude that gives us the alternate approach is one of gentleness. It is one of having that meekness, and and it just shows you the power of Jesus' teaching. Now, look, whether the beatitudes and the woes were meant to be put together, I don't know. All I know is it certainly seems to teach us a lesson, and what we want to do is walk away from all of this thinking to ourselves, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be blind. I want to be a follower of Jesus. How do we do that? We follow through with that gentleness. We have to empty ourselves of ungodly thoughts and actions as we serve others. Jonathan, let's go to 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25.
0: The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth.
1: So you've got this idea of not being quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach, patient, gentle when correcting. When do you see the Pharisees in Scripture ever be gentle with anybody? I mean, think about it. I just dawned on me just a second. When do you ever see that happen? I can't recall anything. When do you see Jesus not being gentle? Only when it was important for him to be hard but every other time there's that gentleness. This is the problem, the fundamental problem of the religiousness of these leaders. Their religiousness had blinded them to being who they should have been. Their own hypocrisy put things in their way. It was the thing that blinded them. They were responsible. So now as we wrap up this episode, the seven woes and seven lessons, we're on the third woe. Jonathan, Julian, and Jonathan, what do we have here as we wrap this up?
2: The most powerfully debilitating blindness in humanity comes from the consistent practice of hypocritical behavior. Such conviction makes seeing and accepting truth nearly impossible.
0: In leaders, this creates a harsh and unyielding approach to those who would follow. This blindness should always be repelled by those who would be teachable and gentle in nature.
1: What we're saying is, with this third woe, the blindness is self inflicted because the hypocrisy is so ingrained. Folks, you got to ask yourself, am I ever in that position where I am so ingrained in something that I've put true scriptural principle aside because this makes it better and makes it stronger and makes it harder. We have to be careful. Folks, we've covered just 3 woes in the first part. Next week we're going to cover the the other 4 woes. And just to give you a quick 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 introduction, the next 4 woes tithing the tiniest details. They were so particular about the tiny details while they're swallowing a camel. Looking bright and shiny and clean, but that only covered the dark and dirt of their sin looking righteous before all. And yet inwardly, they were lawless, righteous versus lawless, and then comparing themselves to history and claiming superiority. We would have never done those things. And yet they were in the process of plotting to murder their Messiah. As we look at all of these things, what we want to do is understand that Jesus had a reason to be hard, to be firm, and to be clear. His time was almost done. They hadn't seen it. He was giving them one last chance. Jesus loved them. That's what he thought of the Pharisees and the scribes. He loved them and wanted to show them what was right. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions in this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. And as we mentioned, coming up in our next episode, What did Jesus really think of the Pharisees? Part two, we already answered what he thought, but we're going to go through those four woes and put it in perspective in the terms of Jesus' own words. We'll talk to you then.